Uh, If you will, please take your Bible to the book of Mark, chapter number 2 this week. Now, this passage that we're going to be reading from is very famous. You've no doubt heard countless sermons on it. And I assure you, many of the ones you've already heard will be better than the one that I'm going to preach to you today. I I fully well anticipate. However, uh, I have always been enamored with this passage of Scripture. And I want to take a bit of a different look at it than maybe some others have. Uh, If you go down and you read through sermons and sermon titles, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. uh, Because so many people have preached on it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage of scripture and he named his uh, sermon, The Man Carried by Four. And to that I say, I'm sure the sermon was really good, but man, he should have been more creative with his title. Because there's just a a, a real, uh, just this is ripe with potential. Uh, There's one man preached a sermon entitled, Where There Is a Will, There Is a Way. I think that's a pretty good title. Uh, And you'll see in a little bit when we get into the passage, there's another man that named it, uh, when Jesus is in the house, and I think that's pretty good. I think that's a, a decent title. Um, this was one of my favorites, Raising the Roof. Raising the Roof, right? And then, uh, uh, and then the, no doubt, by far, the award goes to, for the best sermon title ever on this passage, it's one of the most viewed sermons on our entire live stream or YouTube ch- uh, page, it is this, Four of a Kind Beats a Full House. It is by far the best sermon title However, I think what dad did when he preached that sermon, he knew that he could get the poker crowd looking for like tips to just tune into a sermon on Joshua Baptist's uh, YouTube page. But no doubt this is a very interesting passage of scripture and it's one that I think the Lord has something for us this morning. We'll begin reading in verse number one of Mark chapter two. The Bible says, and again, he entered into Capernaum. The last chapter, and in fact, we spoke out of the last chapter uh, last week, but it begins with Jesus' baptism, and then it goes down through, and and Jesus casts out a demon here in the synagogue. Jesus cures Peter's mother of a fever, and then he heals the uh, leprous man, and all that takes place in Capernaum. The leprous man goes out and publishes abroad what Jesus had done for him, so much so that the city of Capernaum did not have the capacity needed to hold the crowds that were coming to see Jesus, so they moved out into desert places. Uh, And maybe there could be said something about, you know, sometimes the Lord will have to take us to desert places to really truly meet with Him. Sometimes we need to get away from the city life and the big life and all the busyness of everything and the fast food restaurants and and the notifications on our phone and maybe pull away from all that we are engaged in so that we might meet with Jesus in desert places. And in 21st century America, there is something to be said about intentionally pulling away so that we might spend time alone with God. But that's where we ended last week as Jesus is now teaching this multitude of people who have come to meet with him in desert places. Chapter number two begins, and again he entered into Capernaum. After some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Remember I said one of the titles was when Jesus is in the house. Uh, That house there, very likely most people believe that is Peter's house. Remember last week he came to heal Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. And a lot of people believe that Jesus and his disciples were using Peter's house as a sort of headquarters as they ministered here in the area of Capernaum. Now, if I were Peter, 
I would maybe struggle a little bit to see all these uninvited guests come into my home. I mean, this is my space. We can do ministry elsewhere, but this is my home. Imagine if you were Peter. You say, I would probably have such a ministry heart. I would just let everybody in. In so much that there was not room to receive anybody else. I mean, people standing shoulder to shoulder, no social distancing, no face mask wearing, a lot of uh, touching for sure. They are pressed into Peter's house, so much so that these men that want to bring this crippled man to Jesus could not so do so, so they start tearing the roof off. And if I would have been Peter... And if you would have been Peter, here's what we would have been doing. All right, shut it down. <laughs> Let's go home. Church ain't important enough for me to have to call quick roofing and get them to fix this place. All right. Amen, Brother Quick. We can, we can settle up after the sermon. All right. I appreciate that. But uh, uh, I, this would have been hard if I were Peter to watch all of this go on. But it's very likely that this house is Peter's home and Jesus is teaching in his house. Verse number two, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. Nobody else could fit in the house. People's heads were sticking in the windows and, and trying to peek around doors. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Let me read that again to you. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, listen to me, faith is very visible. You might say that, well, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Listen, James says it like this. You say you will show me your faith without thy works. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is visible. And Jesus clearly sees the evidence of these men's faith. And, and by the way, faith is the evidence of something that is unseen. Faith itself produces an evidentiary substance. It says that something exists beyond the realm of the natural. When, when a Christian comes to church uh, in the face of COVID-19, there is a demonstration of faith that the world even has to look at and say, they're either crazy or they have something deeper. They won't go to ball games. They won't go to uh, big malls where everybody's assembled, but they will come to church. They, the, the world looks at that and they say they're either lunatics, and probably most of them are right if they think that, or they say there's something deeper in their spirit that they desire to meet with their God. And so that's what's going on. Jesus saw their faith. He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, 
I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into the house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. Insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. There is so much in this story that could be spoken about. They, I, I think that the, the great miracle of Jesus being able to raise this man and the, the faith demonstrated by the four friends that brought him. Listen to me, if you are a friend of a, a lost person, don't stop trying to bring them to Christ. Don't stop. Don't let obstacles like roofs and, and, and crowded assemblies, don't let all that keep you from being the friend that you ought to be. And when Jesus saw their faith, he honored their faith. So if you have a lost friend or a lost family member, don't stop bringing them before the throne of God. And there's so much that can be preached about in this passage. But tonight or this morning, I'm going to kind of ignore most of those things. And I want to invite you to go with me to be just a crowd member. Just a person in the house. Not the friends, not the man laying on the bed, though I think all of us can identify with both of those people. Just a person in the house who is listening to Jesus preach, who sees his reaction to all that takes place. And I want us to go this morning to just Spend some time with Jesus. You know, that's the best way you get to know people, is by spending time with them. You can't know someone you've never spent any time with. When I was younger, I had a, a youth worker that took me around on visitation. We went every Saturday, so I spent a lot of time with him, Brother John Ringold. And he told me all sorts of stories, some good, some not so good, some that I could present to you, some that I certainly could not present to you. But uh, we had some good times. He would always buy me a Dr. Pepper. We'd go out visiting for the youth department. And I remember one story specifically that he told me, and to the best of my ability, I'll try to get it right, and I'll recite it the way that I recall it. I'm sure it's not grown at all. There's no embellishment at all in this story. But Brother John told me that he was up for a promotion, or, or he was interviewing for a job, I believe it was with Texas A&M University, if I'm not mistaken. However, there were several very qualified candidates, and all the candidates were on kind of a level playing field. They all had the right education, they all had experience, they were all kind of what the application or the job was looking for. And so the, the, the interviewer, invited all of them out to supper individually. And I think maybe three or four applicants were up for this job at this point. It had been narrowed down to this point. And Brother John, believe it or not, was one of the finalists. I don't know how it got there either, but the Lord works in mysterious ways. Amen? However, at this dinner, uh, they, it was a, just the interviewer, just Brother John... They sat down to have dinner. The conversation was good. They were asking about John's, uh, Brother John's require, or, or experience and his, and his knowledge about the area that he would be entering into. And they ordered their meals and all sorts of things. The, the, the conversation, everything went fine. Brother John receives his food. And he, just like he normally would, you know, I'm sure he took his napkin and placed it in his lap, got his silverware ready, uh, got his drink ready. You know, if it was me, I would just take a little sip. You know, you got to get the taste buds working, you know, wake them up a little bit. But Brother John was doing all this. 
And he grabbed the salt, salted his food, put the salt back, and began to eat his food just like normal. Throughout the course of the night, the conversation went well. Everything seemed to go well. And uh, at the end of the night, the, the lady, I believe it was a, 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 interviewing him, told him that he did not get the job. Which was surprising to Brother John because the conversation went well, the application went well. I mean, all of it seemed to go good. But she said, you did something wrong. And Brother John said, okay, what did I do wrong? Nothing stuck out to me. Nothing that I did or said seemed to be offensive in any way or crossing a line. What did I do wrong? And she said, you salted your food before you tasted it. And Brother John said, well, I always do that. And she said, that proves you are closed-minded. Well, I am not here to validate the the substance of that uh, uh, proof. However, I think that we can all understand the, the logic behind that interviewer. She said, if I am going to get to know these applicants, you know what I got to do? Spend time with them. I've got to spend time with them. And she took them to supper and had time with them. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to spend time with him. And today I think if I could invite you into this crowded house... Stand shoulder to shoulder with me as we look at Jesus and see if we can't learn some things about him and what he values in life. Number one, I want to share with you in the first place. Here's what I believe we would learn about Jesus, first of all. We would learn his priority. Notice in verse number two. The Bible says, in straightway, many were gathered together. Now, Jesus is given an opportunity. He has a crowd. He has a group of people. I mean, we as church, uh, as pastor, we're always thinking about how to get people in the doors. Jesus already has them. Jesus has got the crowd. Now what he does with them ought to stick out to us. Because Jesus has all the resources in the world to do whatever he wants, to impress this crowd, to change this crowd, to speak to this crowd. What Jesus' next move is ought to speak volumes to us. Notice what he does. In so much that there was not room enough to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Huh. If you want to spend time with Jesus, you're probably going to get preached at a little bit. You see, Jesus loves preaching. Jesus was a preacher. And I understand that it's, you know, not in, in vogue anymore. I understand that loud preaching and, and, and actual, we don't really preach anymore. We have teaching pastors. I understand that we live in a different day, in a different age, but I believe with all my heart, if Jesus walked the earth right at this moment, you know what he would do? He would preach. He would preach. If you don't like preaching, you won't like spending time with Jesus very much. Jesus preached to them. In fact, Jesus is given the opportunity to go back home to Nazareth where he grew up. Imagine with me, if you will, very likely Jesus goes into town and on the porches of every house, there might be a rocking chair that Jesus himself built when he was growing up. Maybe within the house there's dining room tables that Jesus himself fashioned as a carpenter. 
And this is his hometown. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when you get to go home to do things, it's very, very different than anywhere else. I, I, I enjoy preaching out, but there's no place like home. There's no place like home. When you get the opportunity to preach to those people who you love and you know they love you, there's just something different. And Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue. The Bible says, as his custom was, Jesus made it a practice to go to church. It was his custom. Today, friend, do not get out of the custom of going to church. I understand times are weird. I understand things are changing. I understand the threat of all that there is. Do not get out of the custom of going to church. Jesus would not have. And he goes into the synagogue. And they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus has come back home. Jesus, would you read for us a passage of scripture today? The Bible says he opens the book of Isaiah. We know it as Isaiah chapter 61. And the Bible says Jesus stands and reads these words, okay? He can preach whatever message he wants. Whatever message he wants. He could preach about uh, the blind seeing. He could preach about the the Passover lamb. He could preach about uh, uh, God bringing his people out of Egypt. He has the entire Old Testament at his disposal. And this is the message he preaches. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In Jesus' chosen passage to preach to his hometown, in his passage it says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach on three different occasions. God wants me to preach. Jesus loved preaching. We ought to love preaching too. There are churches moving away from the priority of preaching into longer worship services and shorter preaching services. And I tell you, it is contributing to the anemia of modern day Christianity. We have people that are starving for spiritual growth and all we want to do is sing songs of worship. And my friend, I'm all about singing a song of worship. But God has appointed preaching to feed the soul of the Christian. God has appointed preaching to preach the lost condition of man. God has appointed preaching to preach repentance unto the saint. Listen to me. God has appointed preaching. And I believe with all my heart that good preaching takes all sorts of forms, all different styles. In fact, seated right here on these two rows, Dr. House has a wonderful style of preaching, but it is incredibly different than preachers. And preachers is different than my own. But preaching has certain things about it that ought not to change. I think a few of them are this. Number one, preaching ought to be passionate. That doesn't necessarily mean loud, but it ought to be passionate. You say, why do you say that, Brother Andrew? Because I believe the Bible uses the word keruso to describe preaching. It is the Greek word that means preaching. And it means to proclaim as a herald. That's why I get a little loud and you may not like that. But I just imagine that if I have the proclamation of the King of Kings, when I stand up to speak, it ought to be different than if I'm talking about fantasy football. 
I just think it ought to be different than if I'm talking about something cool I saw on Facebook this week. So I don't talk like this to my friends. I don't go to Brother Sean and say, Hey, Brother Sean, have you gotten any good trail cam photos lately? No, I reserve that for this place only. Why? Because this is the place where I proclaim the message of the King of Kings. This is the place where I am passionate when I deliver God's Word. It ought to be passionate. Jesus was passionate when he preached. All of the men that I read in the Bible, you can see their investment. Listen to me. If the preacher is not emotionally invested in his message, what are the chances his hearers will be? There was a preacher a long time ago. He said, I preach as never sure to preach again. And as a dying man to dying men, he says, I preach as if it's my last time to preach. And if it's that's their last time to hear good preaching. As a dying man to dying men. Preaching ought to be passionate. Preaching ought to be, secondly, pertinent. It ought to be pertinent. Jesus taught in ways where he took heavenly messages that to us, to our carnal minds and, and this crippled spiritual state, he took heavenly messages and delivered them in very practical ways. He comes over, I'm reminded of the time where he's seated on the shores of Galilee and of the Sea of Galilee and uh, he's surrounded maybe by fields that are just now blooming as the time for the growth season is taking place and he's surrounded by all these fields and he says, hey everybody, I want you to listen to me. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Preaching on the backdrop of all these crop fields, he says there's certain types of soil. There's good soil, there's rocky soil, there's thorny soil, and there's soil that is the wayside. What kind of soil are you? It's very practical. The day after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sails across a body of water, arrives on the other side, and the people enjoyed the, day, the, the free meal so much the day before, they follow him over. And Jesus understood why they followed him over. It wasn't to hear good preaching. It was to get another free meal. And by the way, that's how you know Jesus started a Baptist church. Because that's you put a free meal on the sign, you immediately bump your crowd up by about 40%. But they come over and they're like, well, we're ready for our next meal. And Jesus says, listen, I am the bread of life. If any man... Taste of me, he shall never hunger. If any man drink of me, he will never thirst again. Jesus taught very practical messages. He said one day after being criticized with eating with sinners and publicans by the religious elite of the day, he looked straight in their faces and said, which one of you having a hundred sheep? And one of those sheep get lost in the in the hills, which one of you does not leave the 90 and 9 to go find that one lost lamb? And when you find that lost lamb, you throw it on your shoulder and you come back home rejoicing. And there's more rejoicing over the recovery of that one lost lamb than there is in the 90 and 9 that stayed. He's trying to teach them and he valued the, the sinners and the publicans just as much as those religious elite. Jesus taught very practical and pertinent messages. This book is deeper than I will ever be able to go. But listen to me, good preaching is not so deep that you need to go to diving school and not so, and not so lofty that you need a pilot's license because most of us aren't pilots or divers. The Word of God is best preached when it is preached where all of us are at, and that is living the course of the everyday Christian life. 
I'm all about the deep doctrines of the Bible, but good preaching applies in everyday life, very much like Jesus did. Good preaching is passionate, good preaching is pertinent, and good preaching is powerful. But there is something strange, listen to me, there's something strange here. Good preaching is not based upon the skill of the orator. Good preaching, good powerful preaching, is not about how many degrees you have. Good preaching is about God's Spirit working in your life and delivering the message in a way that we never could. You say, I don't really much like good, I don't like preaching, Brother Andrew. Well, the truth is, that is what God has chosen to confound the wise. The Bible says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto, uh, uh, unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made the foolishness the wisdom of this world? He's saying, I do not need Aristotle to deliver my message. In fact, Aristotle had no right to deliver this message. He took everyday common fishermen, guys with very little education. You say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? Okay, yeah, what about Peter? He brought these men out of nothing and delivered to them the most powerful and life-changing book that has ever been given to mankind. And he said, guys, I don't want you to deviate from it. Just preach the word. So much so that the Apostle Paul later on wrote to a, a, a young Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He says, you must preach preaching of the cross is the power of God in the Christian's life. Preaching takes all different types of forms. I don't do it right. Dr. House doesn't, well, he does it right a lot of more times than I do. Preacher does it right significantly more because he writes both of our paychecks. But nonetheless, uh, there is really no right way to preach, but there are plenty of wrong ways. There are people that take this book find a passage and use it as a springboard to preach ideologies, philosophies, and agendas that simply are not in God's Word. Good preaching takes what God has given us and presents it to mankind and says, now you must choose. The Lord stands at the door and knocks. If you will open, He will come in and sup with you. Good preaching is not taking what my experiences or my knowledge or my wisdom. It is taking God's Word and presenting it to you. That is good powerful preaching. Jesus was a preacher and he made preaching his priority. The second point this morning I want you to see, if we were to spend time with Jesus one evening, I think we would learn not only his priority, and that is to preach. We would learn of his passion. His passion. Notice verse number three. The Bible says, and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, I don't think that there's any way that I could uh, really uh, put us in a hypothetical situation to understand what's taking place. But imagine if we could this morning. I am here preaching to you. 
just like this, right now. And somebody comes in and sticks their head in the side door. Says, knocks on it, and I have to stop screaming at you and spitting at you. And they come in and say, hey, Brother Andrew, can I have a word with you? I'll say, yeah, in just a second. I'm busy right now. Right? And and really, y'all would not look at me critically for doing that because I'm preaching to the multitude and one person wants a little bit of my time. But that's what happens. Jesus is preaching to a crowd assembled in a house and they're all engaged in his preaching and all of a sudden a bed is let down right in the middle of the house, albeit it's very difficult to ignore that, but Jesus takes time out of his message to the multitudes to deal with the individual. You know, as I study the course of Jesus' ministry, I find over and over he flees from multitudes to find people, individuals. He flees from the desert places to go to this place to now meet this man born of four. The Bible says when he's talking to his disciples that Jesus tells them we must needs go through Samaria. Well, why do you need to go through Samaria, Lord? We don't really have any dealings with the Samaritans right now. It's kind of a tenuous situation. They don't like us. We don't like them at all. Why would we go through Samaria? And Jesus says, well, there's a well there. There's a water well that we need to go to. So about noontime, the very heat of the day, nobody should be at the well, right? Nobody ought to be there. Why? Because you come in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. Now Jesus comes in the very heat of the day and he sits down at the well and here comes one lady. One. If Jesus had wanted the multitudes, he would have gone in the evening. If he had wanted the multitudes, he would have gone in the morning. But Jesus met one lady and confronted her with her need of him. Over and over we find through scripture, God deals in ones. Reading the Bible as you begin to the beginning of the year, Genesis 1, 2, 3, you get through the story of creation, Genesis 4, 5, and then you get to Genesis chapter 6 and the Bible says that the, 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 the mindset of men... And all that was in the world was just wickedness. Everybody, everything was just evil. Only continually, it was awful. And God says in his heart, I will destroy mankind. And the very next verse says this, But Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Look at me. The world is sitting below God's feet and he looks at it all and says, it's just utterly apostate. It's pagan, it's idolatrous, mankind has become only humanistic, it's awful, it's vile. They have taken something beautiful and destroyed it. I'm going to destroy them, but there is one. He deals in ones. Even when God sought to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he sent angels into Sodom to take out a man who was as backslidden as anybody in all the word of God. And they pull Lot, kicking and screaming, out of Sodom before it's destroyed. Why? Because God loves individuals. If you want to meditate on a thought all this week, every morning you wake up, meditate on this thought. God loves you. No, I I don't think you heard me because we say that a lot, but we don't really understand what it means. 
the sovereign God of heaven who sits on the throne and is worshipped by angels all day and all, well, there's really no night in heaven, but at all times. The God in heaven who looks down on earth, he holds the world up by the word of his power, who flung the stars into its place, who makes sure that the birds are fed and that the flowers grow. That God in heaven doesn't just look at humanity and say, oh, that's an interesting experiment. He doesn't just look at humanity and say, oh, I, I pity them. I, I love them because they're just so, uh, uh, so pathetic. No, no, no. That is not the picture of God. The Bible teaches us, in fact, that God loves you. He loves you. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. What a transcendent thought to know that God does not love me based upon my future performance or my past failures. He loves me as I am. And I am just a speck of dirt on a bigger speck of dirt. And yet God loves me. And he loves you too. God's passion and the passion of Jesus Christ is you. He loves you. He died to save you. God's passion is individuals. I'm even reminded of the thief on the cross as Jesus lays there gasping for breath and that one poor sinner sitting on that cross beside him says, Jesus, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today, God cares about every single person in this room. But He doesn't care for us as a collective. He cares for us as individuals. He loves you and He is willing to save you. And listen to me, the great, the, the great problem in uh, trend, generational Christianity, meaning it goes from one generation to the next, is sometimes we get the idea, especially as young people, we get the idea that we can live off our parents' faith. We get the idea that as long as dad has a relationship with God, I can have a relationship with God or I can live off of his relationship with God. No, no, no. God wants you to know him. He has broken down every barrier that there is so that you might know him. God already knows you through and through, but you can know him. And that is God's desire for you as an individual loving relationship with him. God's passion is for the individual. God's priority or Jesus' priority is to preach. And I want you to see in the last place, we see his power. If we were to get shoulder to shoulder into Peter's crowded house, we would begin to see Jesus' power. Verses 5 through 11. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Can you imagine... Being these four men, bringing this man to Jesus, they've worked and they've connived to get around all the obstacles. They break down the roof and they let him down on the bed in front of Jesus there as he's preaching. Could you imagine what their shock would have been as Jesus says, Guys, I really admire your persistence. And I can see that each of you are full of faith as you bring your friend to me. So let me, I'm going to do you guys a big favor. And maybe one guy pokes the other with his elbows. And says, He's going to heal him. He's going to heal him. He's going to do what we brought him to do. We saw him do it all last chapter. He's going to do it, man. This is going to be great. He's going to 
heal old crippled man. Man, this is going to be awesome. And Jesus says, thy sins be forgiven thee. And one guy looks at the other guy and says, well, that wasn't really what we were shooting for. I mean, primarily, we didn't bring him so that he could, you know, have sins forgiven. The whole reason we brought him was so that you could heal our friend. But they had no idea that he healed him better than they could have ever understood. Here we find the scribes sitting around. They begin to reason in their heart. And I want you to read with me uh, verse number six. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, many times you find the Pharisees and the scribes following Jesus in every public uh, a setting, trying to catch him in his words. But I just want to tell you that these men are not being overly critical right here. They, what they are saying is true. What they are questioning in their hearts, they're saying, that's not, that's not for men to do. Only God can forgive sins. In fact, David put it like this in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, had he done a lot of people wrong? Oh, absolutely. There was a string of corpses in his wake. But he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And listen, every sin that you commit is not against your neighbor, is not against your brother. It is against God. And these scribes, they look at each other and say, that's only something God can do. And I want to kind of illustrate it like this. Imagine, boy, it's been a long time since I left the stage. Starry camera, guys. Uh, imagine if Dr. House and Preacher are really good friends. I mean, they go way back. You know, them and Noah went into the boat business together. So, I mean, they go way back. But imagine that Dr. House did something that offended Preacher. And maybe it was not just something that Preacher like took and said, you know what, he interpreted it wrong. Or maybe Dr. House, I know he's a spiritual man and he would never do this, but maybe he actually did something that rightfully sinned against Preacher. Now, I'm kind of a bridge builder. I, I kind of want to mend fences. I don't like seeing people at odds with one another. So maybe I come in and I try to restore it, but it's clear that feelings are so hurt and, you know, it's all fractured. And so this is just a real issue. And I come to Dr. House and I say, you know what, Dr. House? What you did was wrong, but I want you to know I forgive you. What does that matter? Who am I? I'm this third-party advocate, this intermediary, trying to make their fences mended, but preacher's still offended. Dr. House still offended him. What does it matter if I forgive him? And that is exactly what the scribes are saying. They're saying, it doesn't matter if Jesus forgives this man's sin. This man's sin is against God. And what Jesus was proclaiming is, you have sinned against me. Because I am God. And in sinning, you have trespassed against me. And because your sin is against me, only I have the authority and the power to forgive you. And they say, who is this man that forgives sins? They weren't wrong. The only thing that they were wrong in is that they thought Jesus was only a man. They said, who is this man? Oh, you're right. Men cannot forgive sins. 
but this God can. And Jesus was proclaiming to forgive this man's sin. Now, I think it's appropriate that he goes on to heal this man, to raise him up. That's all great. And we love talking about the paralytic man carrying his bed out. Man, it's a great story. But what we do as human beings, we prioritize physical healings far more than we do spiritual healings. We pray for cancer to go away. We pray for people to be healed miraculously. Those are our primary concerns because we're currently living in a sin-cursed world and living in our flesh. We want God to just walk down the halls of St. Jude's and Cook's Children's and just heal every one of those kids. But what we, would, what we ought to understand is man's greatest need and God's greatest gift is not physical healing, it is spiritual healing. What Jesus did in the first place was no fireworks for anybody. I mean, nobody was like, wow, he forgave his sins. Amen, brother, way to go, Jesus. Nobody has that reaction, but they're all impressed when he's healed physically. Jesus created our bodies. He can heal them. He can lift them up. He can put them down. That is no big thing for Jesus. In fact, it doesn't cost him one iota of power to do that. But in forgiving man's sins, it cost God everything. Oh, he can speak and nature listens. But in order for man's sins to be taken away, he had to go to the cross of Calvary and every single ounce of his blood had to be shed for the remission of sins. And it's only the blood of Jesus that covers and takes away sins. In fact, God says to Isaiah... I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. In the book of of Psalms, the Bible says this, As far as the east and the west is, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. 1 John says this, If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And it is not just at the word that he does it, but it is at the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary that that work is accomplished. It was for forgiveness that he suffered and bled and died, not for physical healing. My friends, we've lost some great saints of God here lately. And the thing that has moved my heart more than ever is that these men of God lived out a full life of faith, but now that faith has been confirmed in their hearts. God kept his promise. Those men are now basking in the promises of God. And by promises, I don't mean, oh, a mansion on Hallelujah Boulevard and streets of gold. No, no. They are saved. And they are eternally secure in heaven, never to suffer separation from God, never to suffer condemnation in hell. The promise of God has been kept, and it was earned by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He said, your sins are forgiven. And if our sins are forgiven today, there ought not be any greater joy in our life than to know that we at this moment stand right before our God and that any moment of the day we can go into God's throne room with boldness that we may obtain help in our time of need. There is no greater truth in all the Word of God than that God forgives repentant sinners. You are forgiven. And all you have to do is confess your sins and invite Jesus into your heart. 
I mentioned Wednesday night that our children keep our house in a constant state of mess. I mentioned how Thomas has found the baby powder bottles and that has become his great joy of life. Uh, I did mention the other day that the sweet baby Ray's bottle became a substitute when he could not find a baby powder bottle. Barbecue sauce all over our house. Just, it looks like a murder scene has taken place, but the murder of a tasty pork chop or something and not a human being. But man, he took this whole bottle of barbecue sauce and spilled it out everywhere. And we tried with the cleaning products that we have, we tried to the very best of our ability to get stuff up, but the stuff that we have just doesn't work. And I asked Amy the other day, I said, babe, are we going to call the carpet cleaners to come out and take care of this? And she said, yes, but I'm going to wait till the kids go back to school. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That is smart thinking. Spiritual discernment, that's what that is. But the problem is too many people come to church, they hear a sermon about the forgiveness of sins, and they say, yeah, but I'll wait till... Or they try, like me and Amy, to take the products that we have and apply them to their own life and realize that those products will never meet the bill. They can never remove sins. Today, the only way to receive forgiveness of sins is through the application of Jesus' blood on your life. To say with all your heart, God, I confess that I'm a sinner and I know I need to be saved. Come into my heart, save my soul, forgive me of my sins, and take me to heaven when I die. It is only through a heartfelt prayer, something similar to that, that says, God, I am sorry, would you please save me? And the Bible says at that moment you are forgiven. Don't wait till school goes back. Have the blood of Jesus applied to your life. And the hymn writer said, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of God.